Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 7, The Watcher on the Beach Sometimes it seemed to Rick that there was a special angel who looked out for him. He had worried about getting away from the tarpon, knowing that Dr. Warren would certainly object to his tracking Gerald. Rick cooked up various schemes with the help of Scotty, but Dr. Warren returned from his visit to the authorities and made them all unnecessary. The police chief, with a shrug of his shoulders, had promised an investigation, but had held out no hope. The police had been concerned with this phantom shark for years, but to no avail. Dr. Warren, disgusted with the chief's defeatist attitude, had demanded to see the governor. The governor had been most polite and had insisted that they discussed the matter at a formal dinner in honor of the visiting scientists at his residence. That invitation didn't include us, did it? Rick asked anxiously. Dr. Warren smiled his understanding. Not anxious to dine with the governor, eh, Rick? Well, we'll interpret his invitation to mean only those of voting age, unless Scotty, Bobby, and Chada want to go. Here, Mrs. Warren interrupted. We'll take Barbara with us. And Chada, you may come along as her escort. I suspect that Rick and Scotty will never miss us. Barbie glanced suspiciously at the two boys, but their faces were blank. She made a face and then exclaimed, That will be wonderful, Aunt Helen. So at 8.30 in the evening, because the sailors had taken the opportunity to go ashore, only Rick and Scotty and Jack Pualani were left aboard the ship. The two boys sat on the afterdeck, looking out into the fast-darkening harbor. Time to go, Rick said. They walked around to the opposite side of the deck, where Jack Pulani had a chair pulled up next to the gangplank. Are you going ashore? he asked. For a while, Rick replied. The boys hurried along the pier into town. It was almost fully dark now, and there were few lights. Only a handful of people were around. On the hill above the town, near the great cathedral that was Numea's principal landmark, they saw bright lights and guessed that that was the governor's house. They'll be returning to the ship about half-past ten, Scotty said. I hope Gerald doesn't wait until then. He won't. This town goes to bed early. I bet he waits only until things have quieted down. And it was a good guess. They took up stations in an alley next to the hotel where Gerald had his suite. There were lights in his sitting room, and once they saw him silhouetted against the light. Then, about a half an hour later, the lights went out. Rick squeezed Scotty's arm. Here we go. We'd better separate. Then, if he spots one of us, the other can keep track after him. Good idea. 
What do we do when we find this phantom shark? That stopped Rick short. He hadn't thought that far ahead. I don't know. Try to get a look at his face, I suppose. If that's not possible, try to follow him. Suppose he's in a boat again. Well, we can move with him along the shore. He'll have to put it somewhere, especially if it's only a rowboat. Okay, I'll hack down the street. Scotty moved noiselessly away, and Rick was left alone. The town was quiet now, and lights were winking out in the houses. Rick flattened against the wall as the big American came out of the hotel, lighting a cigar. For a moment, Gerald stood there, the cigar drawing well, and then he moved off toward the main street. Rick let him get half a block ahead and then slipped after him. Gerald was in no hurry. He walked slowly, savoring his cigar and evidently enjoying the night air. Sometimes Rick had to lean against a building or a tree to keep from catching up. Scotty was nowhere to be seen, nor did Rick expect to see him. When it came to tracking, the ex-Marine had few peers. The way led along a street called Rue de General Galliani. There were no stores now, and the houses were farther apart. The street was approaching the waterfront. As they reached the outskirts of town, Gerald threw his cigar away. He whirled suddenly and looked back. Rick melted into the shadow of a clump of brush. For long moments, Gerald watched, then he turned and started off again with lengthened stride. Rick realized they were heading toward Anzavata. The road was at the water's edge now. It followed the water in a sweeping curve. The other side of the highway, varying from flat land to occasional hummocks. Half a mile down was a good-sized hill. Rick remembered that the road ran around the hill and cut away from the water for a short distance and then went straight, paralleling the sea. He tried to recall if he had seen any houses on that road and couldn't remember any. He did recall the shack that Bartholomew had mentioned. It was a little more than a lean-to. Oz were against the old man being there. He would be too frightened to return, just in case the phantom shark frequented the place. Rick kept to the side of the road, ready to drop behind a convenient bush, in case Gerald should turn suddenly. There was no moon, but the stars were fully out and very bright. He could see the man dimly ahead of him. A couple of times he looked for Scotty, but there was no sign of his friend. He couldn't be sure whether Scotty was ahead or behind, or even to one side climbing over the hillocks. Gerald turned to watch the road as they rounded the corner of the big hill. Rick saw the man stop, and he dropped to his knees, moving sideways into the shelter of a very big rock. Presently, Gerald continued on, evidently satisfied. He passed the hill and continued along the beach road at a faster clip. Rick surveyed the terrain carefully as he went. Along the rocky beach, the road was straight. On the side away from the water was a flat stretch, then the beginning of a high ridge. A thousand yards beyond the first hill was another around which the road made a turn. Right behind the second hill was the sandy Ansvata beach, where Barthelme's hut was located. As Gerald reached the second hill, Rick hesitated. Then instead of following the road, he cut behind the hill. It was hard going over rocks and thorn bush, but he was very quiet. 
and presently he came out on a knoll overlooking the beach. He could see Gerald clearly, silhouetted against the white sand of the water. Now to find a good vantage point. Almost at the edge of the road was a clump of brush, a good big one that would hide him very well, but he would have to cross an open space to get to it. He estimated his chances. They were good unless Gerald turned around. He was facing out to sea, evidently waiting for the phantom shark to come by boat. Rick crawled down the knoll and reached the bottom safely, and then, bet very low, he ran, careful to place his feet correctly. He was halfway to the brush when Gerald turned. Instantly he froze, sinking to the ground. For a long moment Gerald surveyed the hill behind him and then resumed his gaze out to sea. Rick was in the clump of brush with three long steps. Moving carefully, he wrinkled to his very center and a little beyond. Now, by moving a branch, he had an excellent view of the beach. There was no sign of the expected visitor. Gerald waited for long minutes and then sat down in the sand. Rick kept a careful watch in all directions, just in case the phantom shark decided to come by land. He wondered where Scotty had disappeared to, but then again his friend could have been within yards of him and he wouldn't have known. He stirred a little. Mosquitoes had found him. They whined around his ears and almost drove him crazy. Now and then he brushed some of them away cautiously. He didn't dare slap. Sand grated a few yards away and Rick froze. Then, with infinite slowness, he picked up a handful of leaf mold and smeared his face and hands. Why hadn't he done that before? He was wearing dark slacks and a dark shirt. Now with his face and hands darkened, he couldn't be seen. He turned very carefully, so as not to disturb a single twig. A short distance away, behind a hummock of earth, a figure was just settling to the ground. The figure was indistinct, but he knew it wasn't Scotty. Where was Scotty? He faced forward again, not even daring to breathe normally, in case the unexpected watcher had good ears. Then he saw Gerald stand, and beyond him, he saw the dark bulk of a boat. The phantom shark had finally come. He kept his eyes on the figure across the road, and on the dark bulk beyond, that was the phantom shark's boat. Now and then he turned his head very slowly to look at the figure next to him. The man, whoever he was, hadn't moved. The boat grew more distinct as it neared the shore. It was a small, narrow ship's dory, rowed by its signal occupant, and again he wondered, where was Scotty? He had lost track of time. Surely hours had passed. He wished for a look at his watch, but the luminous dial was hidden by his shirt sleeve, and he didn't dare expose it. There was a sound of wood grating on sand as the rowboat was beached. He strained to see as a figure climbed down and walked to meet Gerald. Posture, walk, general disposition of bulk, all those things played as a great part in identification as a face. He knew he probably would never see the phantom shark's face. But although Gerald was fairly distinct and recognizable, the newcomer was nothing more than a blurred bulk. Gerald's voice came to him, low but distinct. Did you bring them? The dark figure nodded, 
All of them? The figure shook its head. Rick wondered why he dared to meet Gerald in such an open spot, and decided it was about the safest place. The beach was unoccupied, and few people came this way at night. His wealthy customer wasn't apt to give him away. He would cut off the supply of pearls needed to match the priceless necklace. Should a car come, which was unlikely, the shark had only to get into his boat and row away. Gerald would not need to explain his presence, even to the police. Let me see them, Gerald said. He took a flashlight from his pocket and shot a narrow beam down on what Rick could clearly see were black-gloved hands. He caught a glimpse of white in the gloves and guessed they were pearls. There was disappointment in Gerald's voice. Is that all? The dark figure shrugged. You said you would have enough when I met you the last time. Another shrug. When will you have them? The figure stopped and wrote something in the sand and then erased it. I can't wait that long, Gerald said irritably. I've got to leave here. The black figure turned and walked to the boat. Wait, Gerald cried. All right, how much for these? The shark wrote again in the sand. It was a long minute before Gerald spoke again. Here's your money. You're bleeding me. Because you know I'll pay to finish the necklace. But don't push me too far. And remember, if these don't match, you might get them back. The figure nodded. The flashlight clicked off, then the phantom shark turned and jumped into the rowboat. A powerful push with an oar shoved it into the low surf. Determined not to let the phantom shark leave without asking him some questions, Rick was in the middle of the road before he remembered the watcher. He turned in time to see a figure lunging at him, and his action was instinctive. He reached forward and grasped a thick wrist. Then as the man reached him, he fell backward, his leg pushing upward into the attacker's stomach and throwing the man completely over his head. But the weight of the man's flying body snapped his head down sharply against the paved road. The strength drained out of him. He sat up dizzily and turned to see his attacker get to his feet again and charge. Rick wasn't there to meet the charge, though. He ducked to one side and his attacker flailed past, reaching for him. The boy shook his head, still groggy from the bang on the pavement. He stepped back as the man rushed again, and his foot met dry, slippery grass. He had stepped off the road. He fell to one knee, and the driving figure smashed into him with stunning force. Locked together, they rolled off the strip of thin grass to the beach. Rick brought up his hand sharply against the man's throat and broke his hold, and then struggled to his feet and jumped to one side, prepared to meet the next charge. It came with jarring force, and the soft sand betrayed him. He fell forward, his arms around his opponent's waist. He heard the man's heavy breathing, and then winced and hammer blows on the back of his head. With a heave, he threw the man from him and followed up with a rush that drove his head into the pit of the attacker's stomach. The man fell back a little against the bank. One hand flashed to his hip, and Rick's breath caught at the gleam of steel. Rick leapt forward and shot an uppercut that started at his shoe tops. The shock of impact ran up his arm and jarred him. The assailant's knees buckled. He dropped to the sand on his face. Rick whirled, wondering about Gerald. 
For an instant, he didn't see the big man, and then he saw two figures struggling on the beach. He ran to them, unsteady in the sand, just as the smaller of the two figures catapulted away from the pile and rolled over. Scotty. Rick tensed for a dive at Gerald, but the big man's voice stopped him cold. Don't try it. I've got a gun pointed right at your middle. He could tell from the tone that the American wasn't fooling. Gerald got to his feet as Scotty sat up. I don't know what you're thinking about all this, he muttered. But keep your distance, because I won't hesitate to put a slug through you and call it self-defense. What's the idea, anyway? He took the light from his pocket and flashed it to Scotty. The boy blinked in the sudden glare. Why did you jump me? Your man jumped my friend, Scotty said coolly. My man? Gerald shot the light at Rick's assailant. He walked over to the huddled form and turned him over. It was the half-caste clerk. I've never seen him before. Now come on, talk, Gerald said flatly. All right. Fine, Rick said. We're here because we knew you were going to meet the Phantom Shark. We want him because he cut our rudder cables. Gerald laughed harshly. You're lucky he didn't cut your throats. He maybe he will yet. How'd you know I was going to meet him? You told us, Scotty said. So don't get careless with your gun, because if we got hurt, our friends would pass the word around that you told us, and it would be your throat that the shark would work on. Gerald chuckled again, and there was merriment in his laughter this time. All right, kids, we'll call it a stalemate. I admire your nerve, but take a tip. Keep quiet about this. People who stick their noses into my business get hurt. He put the gun and the flashlight back into his pocket and walked to the road. He turned, waved jauntily, and then hiked rapidly toward town. Scotty, are you all right? Rick asked anxiously. Just a lump on my jaw. He's as strong as an ox. I thought he was going to jump you, so I tackled him. Just then, the unconscious man groaned. He's coming too. Watch him, Scotty. He's got a knife. Scotty's hands patted the clerk's clothes and came up with a wicked-looking stiletto. He tossed it into the surf. Well, what are we going to do with him? Rick knelt beside the clerk. Ask him some questions. He shook the man. What were you doing here? No answer. He won't talk. I know his type. Better tie him up and leave him here. We can send the police for him. That's a good idea. But what are we going to tie him with? Scotty pointed to his belt. As they began to unbuckle their belts, the half-caste made a convulsive movement, rose to his feet, and dashed across the road, vanishing into the brush. Just what do we get out of this little junket? Scotty remarked sourly. Rick scratched. Lots of mosquito bites, he said ruefully. Chapter 8 the mate story. Rick looked at his watch. Amazingly, it was only a little after half-past nine. A lot has certainly happened in a short time. He scratched a mosquito bite furiously and stated, We better get going. We can still get back aboard ship before the wards and the others return. Scotty and Rick walked rapidly as they talked, and soon a few scattered lights showed that Numea was right ahead. Almost there, 
Rick remarked. By the way, where were you before the battle started? Buried in the sandbank when that half-caste clerk jumped you. Wonder what he was doing there. Rick thought about it for a few moments, and finally he said, I think he was there as a guard. Otherwise, why would he have jumped me like that? We know the Phantom Shark is pretty cautious. Scotty, you were closer than me. What did he look like? Search me, Scotty replied. He not only covers his face, but his body, too. No chance of recognition. I think you're right about the clerk being a guard. I'm not proud of the way we let him get away, though. I wouldn't be surprised to see him turn up with some more mischief, like cutting the tarp and steering cables. No proof, Rick objected. We surmise he's a confederate of the Phantom Shark, but how can we prove that? Maybe we can, Scotty answered. Gerald and the Phantom Shark are going to meet again on the 15th of the month. Gerald turned on his flashlight and I saw the shark write the date in the sand. Did you see how much Gerald paid for the pearls, Rick asked. Scotty shook his head. I tried, but he stepped in front of him with the shark wrote. Rick turned the information over in his mind. Listen, Gerald expected to get enough pearls to fill his string. The shark didn't have them, but he'll have some more on the 15th. Where's he going to get them? Probably rob some poor Kanaka boy, Scotty guessed. Not according to your way of figuring. He couldn't get that many pearls from a hundred Kanaka boys. Not and have them match. Well, however he gets them, we'll be a good many miles away from here on the 15th, Scotty said resignedly. They had reached the city. In a few moments, they were walking up the pier to greet Jack Pualani. The big Hawaiian tilted back in his deck chair and looked them over. A pretty sad-looking pair. Rick saw that Jack had a twinkle in his eye. He was curious as to what had happened. The boys decided to take a chance. We'll tell you the whole story, Rick said, if you keep it quiet until I have a chance to see Dr. Ward alone. Jack grinned. I've been guilty of a lot of things in my time, but talking too much was never one of them. Shoot. Rick did. He started at the moment he and Scotty had left the ship, with Scotty adding his own comments. Jack Pualani listened closely, and his eyes showed his admiration for the venturesome pair. It's a miracle you didn't get hurt, but I guess you could take care of yourselves. Too bad that cable cutter got away. Well, what's your next step? I don't know, Rick confessed. He sat down on the deck next to Jack's chair, rested his back against the wheelhouse. I'd like to know what reason the shark had for sabotaging us. If we knew that, we'd be able to figure out the next step. Well, that's easy, Jack said. Rick and Scotty looked at him in surprise. Can't you guess? The only reason he could have would be to keep us away from Nanatiki for a while. But he's not in Nanatiki. He's here, Rick objected. Jack shrugged. Any reason why he can't leave here? He must be getting his pearls from somewhere. And both the Dutchman and the Australian said he hangs out near Nanatiki. It made sense. It actually made really good sense, Rick thought. Fifteen days, Scotty mused. That doesn't leave much time for him to get his pearls, does it? He has to get there by boat. That must mean he isn't planning a robbery. If he were, he wouldn't have set a schedule. Jack Pualani stood up and stretched. 
Better change your clothes. I'll go into the galley and make us some chocolate. Then when you get back here, I'll spin you a yarn about the phantom shark. A few minutes later, the boys and Jack Pulani were seated on the deck with hot cups of chocolate. But before Jack had a chance to begin his yarn, there was a hail from the dock. It was the Warrens and Barbie and Chada returning from the governor's palace. The Warrens said goodnight and gave Barbara a very pointed hint about the efficacy of beauty sleep. But when she found out that Jack Pulani was in the midst of a story, she and Chada hung back. Jack took time out to light a very large and very odorous pipe. I've heard about the Phantom Shark for a long while, but I always dismiss the yard as being folklore. We Hawaiians have a lot of folklore about shark gods and man sharks and things like that. Was this before the war? Rick asked. No, about two years ago. As I said, I thought the stories were just good yarns, but then I found a friend of mine who had actually seen the Phantom Shark. They were listening attentively. A lot of stories about the Phantom Shark described the pearls he had. Some even said they were as big as golf balls. Pearls don't grow that big, of course. I heard tales that he had sold pearls to tourists. That was a new wrinkle. When a mythical shark god starts being a salesman, I give up. Anyway, the story my friend told me was about a rich tourist. He had been trying to match up a set of pearls for his daughter's wedding present. He was in a hurry and didn't care how much he paid. He could probably have matched the set at a pearl dealer's, except for one thing. The set was made up of black pearls. Rick had never heard of black pearls. That's a funny color to collect, he said. They're very rare and very valuable, Barbie said. What kind of set was it? Earrings, bracelet, pendant. He had bought some in Java, some in the Sulu Sea region, some in Ceylon. He had about ten, and he needed five more. Well, he was staying at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. One day he got back from dinner. There was a typewritten note on his telephone stand. It said that if he wanted enough black pearls to finish the set, he was to row a boat to a point just outside Kewalo Basin, and he was to tell no one. He was to bring a $100,000 in medium denomination bills, and he had 10 days to get the cash. Pearls would be in a can. If he wanted them, he was to take them and leave the money. If not, he could just row back to shore and forget it. He could go by daylight, just before evening, so he could be sure robbery wasn't in the wind. Was the note signed? Scotty asked. No, but wrapped in it was a single shark's tooth. Go on, Barbie pleaded. What did he do? He cabled his bank in New York and had a courier sent to Hawaii by air with the money. He had the fever all right. Man starts matching pearls and it gets to him. Well, just as instructed, he rode out past the reef, found a big tin floating there. It was one of those five-gallon gasoline tins with a screw top. Inside were five black pearls. They were just exactly what he wanted. There was even an odd-shaped one that was perfect for a pendant. This man took the pearls, put his money in the can, screwed the cover on tight, and rode back to shore. He was perfectly satisfied with the deal. He figured he had kept his part of the bargain, so he decided there was nothing wrong in seeing what happened to the money. He invited a few friends to keep watch with him. They all borrowed powerful glasses, then went up on the roof of the hotel. Just about dusk, they could see the can bobbing around in the swell. 
Did I say it was anchored? It was anchored with a rope tied to a big hunk of coral. What a chance, Dick said longingly. He must have used a small boat. They could have trailed him. Not so fast. Listen to the rest. These people watched until it was almost dark. Then there was a swirl of water next to the can, and they saw it clearly. They saw a giant silver fin. The can vanished under the water, and so did the fin. That was all there was to it. Jack paused. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? But remember, there were reliable witnesses, including my friend. They all saw the same thing. They got a powerboat and went out to where the can had been. It was only ten feet deep. My friend went over to the side and hunted on the bottom, using the ship's searchlight to see by. They found the rope and the coral it was tied to, but there was no sign of the can. He brought the rope up and examined it. The upper end had been sheared, as though a knife had been used. A shark could have sheared it the same way. For long minutes, Rick stared at the scarry sky. It couldn't have been a real shark, he said finally. I can't swallow that. Jack nodded. Same here, but you have any other ideas? A diving suit, Scotty suggested. Never saw one with a fin or one that traveled along the surface and collected tin cans. Rick sighed. Nothing about it makes any sense. Let's sum up what we know. He collects his money while in the form of a shark, as well as in the form of a man. He sells pearls to anyone with money enough. He gets them by robbing Kanaka boys. He also gets them from a cache he has at Nanatiki. He doesn't like ships to go to Nanatiki, so he cuts their rudder cables. Or maybe he swims through the pores of the wood into the bilge water and bites the cables in two. His sales area covers the Pacific from Batavia to Rabal to Noumea to Honolulu, maybe even to Tahiti. He has an assistant who hides in the bushes. He also has a rowboat, probably a ship's boat off whatever craft he uses to get around in. He gets rid of people he doesn't like either by biting them or cutting their throats with a knife made of shark's teeth. Poor people are afraid of him, but rich tourists do business with him. Rick rose and looked at his friends. Frankly, I'm sick of him. I'm going to bed. Good night. He scratched one ankle and added as an afterthought, after I get something to put on these bites, that is. Anyway, I suppose I should be glad I got them from mosquitoes and not from the Phantom Shark. On his way to his cabin, Rick noticed that light still showed under the door of the ward cabin. This was a good chance to tell the scientist of the events of the evening. He tapped on the door. Dr. Warren in pajamas and bathrobe came to the door. What's up, Rick? He asked. As briefly as possible, Rick told Dr. Warren what had happened at Anse Bata. His own cabin was dark when he returned some 15 minutes later, and Scotty and Chata were asleep.